0: match chat is brought to you by walters walters is your spot before and after the u.s women's national soccer team's match against nigeria
1: match begins at 6 p.m on tuesday september 6th at audi field
2: we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Manessis at third, Ruiz at second, Hernandez at first. The 0-1. Vargas is swinging a little looper to left center field. Canna chasing over into a dive, and he traps it. It's off his glove. Two runs are going to score as Canna throws it back in. Crossing the plate, Manessis and Ruiz over to third, Hernandez. Ildemaro Vargas drops in a two-run single and gives the Nationals a 5-1 lead. Here's the set. And now the pitch. Swing and a drive hit deep to right. Toward the line. This one way back. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. A home run. A two-run shot for Cesar Hernandez. Taking until game number 134 of the year. He had 21 home runs last year, a career high. That is number one. And it gives the Nationals... Two more here in the top of the fifth inning, and it's now Washington 7 and New York 1.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, September 5th, 2022, Labor Day 2022, along with Sports.com, Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, was at Citi Field in New York. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Forget about Sunday being a day of rest. Sunday for the Nats has become a day of ending droughts. Now, two Sundays ago, August 28th, 3-2 win over Cincinnati at Nationals Park. Patrick Corbin got the win, ending that Nats streak of 43 consecutive games without a starting pitcher earning a win. Longest such streak in modern Major League history. This past Sunday, September 4th, a 7-1 win at the National League is leading New York Mets. Cesar Hernandez homered his first home run of the season, and it was a second-deck homer. So that drought ended and the Nats completed their first series win over a National League East team since winning two or three games at the Atlanta Braves April 11th through the 13th. The droughts are ending. The Nats are playing better. They now have won five of their last seven games. A very nice job by the Nats in this series. And Mark, the Nats' two wins in this series were no doubters. Back-to-back, 7-1 wins at the division-leading Mets in a crucial series for them in this month of September, who'd have thunk it?
1: Yeah, and I mean these are games that matter to the Mets a lot. As we tape this, they are in danger of falling to only one game ahead of the Braves in the NL East, which is something that you know you can say, "Well, hey, they're both going to make the playoffs, no big deal." No, it is actually a pretty big deal because the way it's set up this year, remember, the top two seeds in each league, so the two teams with the best records among the division winners get a buy to the NLDS and the second place team, you're gonna be the top wildcard seed and you're gonna to have to host a three game series. So there is a significant difference between winning the NL East and finishing second this year. And if you're the Mets, I think you're starting to sweat a little bit and the Nats played a role in that. And Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> We've talked about how bad they've been against the division. Nine and forty-three they were until these two straight wins. Eric Fetty had never beaten the Mets in his career. Sixteen games against them, eleven starts, and here they go and win two games. Like you said, in convincing fashion. And here's—I think this is probably the most bizarre stat of them all. The Nats have now won six road series this year but three of them have come against the Dodgers, the Braves, and the Mets, the three best teams in the National League. Dare I say they rise to the occasion when they're facing the best?
0: I suppose you could say that, and uh, they drop to the bottom of the earth when they're playing everybody else, it feels like. But yeah, I mean, look, we've talked about this. The Nats are playing better. They outplayed the Mets in this series. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you'd think that the Mets were the team with the worst record in the majors, and the Nats were the team that was in the midst – Of a pennant race. I mean, for those who know their Mets history, I think a lot of us have been kind of waiting for the Mets to fall apart this season. And, you know, to their credit, they haven't, you know, despite the likes of Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer having missed so much time. And maybe the Mets won't end up falling apart, but if they do, I don't think anyone's going to be stunned by that, given what has happened with them over the years. But that's a Mets issue. With the Nats, I mean, there was a lot to like in this series. You had good starting pitching over the final two games. You had good defense, as we had discussed. That's been so much better. And you had some really nice offensive performances in this series. I mean, Cesar Hernandez homering is nice and fun, but I, I think that that's so like emblematic of things. Like the Nats offense has gotten so much better now to where Cesar Hernandez hits a home run. But you had Lane Thomas being an offensive force over the final two games of this series. You had Luis Garcia doing a number of nice things over really all three games in this series. You saw more heroics from Ildemarro Vargas. You saw Kabe Ruiz, who wasn't even supposed to start on Sunday, finishing with three singles in the game. You're getting contributions from a lot of different guys right now offensively.
1: You are, and in some of these cases, these are potential building blocks that you're getting it from. So all respect to Cesar Hernandez, everybody was happy for him that he finally got off the schneid, hit the first home run in 543 plate appearances this season. But truthfully, the more significant developments over the weekend were Lane Thomas, Luis Garcia and Cabert Ruiz, I would say. Those are three guys who are part of the future in theory. They came through in some big spots, especially Garcia. I mean, this was almost like a breakthrough series for him, I felt like, both at the plate and in the field. I thought that was a big deal for him. I'd love to see Cabert Ruiz coming back. He was not supposed to play. He typically would get a day game after a night game off, but he went to Davey Martinez's office after the game on Saturday night and said, I want to play tomorrow. Dave said, all right, well, you feeling okay? You took a foul ball off your mask and everything all right? And he says, yeah, I feel great. Dave says, okay, you've earned it. The way you've played this year, as long as you're feeling all right, you've earned the right to come back and start another game. And for a catcher to do that and want to be in the finale of a big series on the road against a potential playoff team it says a lot about him. And then he delivered on top of it all. So you are seeing the growth and maturation of a young catcher there. We are seeing the growth and maturation of some young infielders. All of these are really encouraging signs when you look at the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, Caber Ruiz on Sunday afternoon, three for five, two-run single and two other singles. He had in that Nats four-run third, a two-out bases loaded, two-run single to center field. In the Nats two-run fifth, he had a two-out opposite field single to left field on an 0-2 pitch. And he, in the top of the seventh, had a first-pitch single through the right side of the infield. I mean, I do wonder how much of Kbert playing for a third straight game in the series on Sunday had to do with the Nats haven't gotten like nothing from their backup catchers offensively this season. On the list of Nats problems, that's down the list. But man, I mean, the Nats have gotten nothing offensively from Riley Adams and Tres Pereira this season. But all credit to Kbert Ruiz. He looks so good offensively in this game. And you know, I tell you with Luis Garcia, I mean, like I said, he was good really offensively to varying degrees in all three games in this series. He only had the one hit on Sunday afternoon, but it was a significant hit in that Nats one run first, opposite field RBI single through the left side to put the Nats up one nothing. And you know, I was looking at some numbers after the game. So Luis Garcia got called up this season from Triple A Rochester on June first. He over various major league stands the previous two seasons. Had had a slash line at 254, 285, 395. His slash line this season at the major league level, batting average at 298, so that's up from 254 the previous two years. OBP a 310, up from 285 the last two years. Slugging a 443, up from 395 over the last two years. His overall numbers don't like wow you but they are markedly better than what he had been doing the last two years. He really has shown improvement as a batter this season. I think there's been a consistency with him for the most part. You know, there've been, there's been some ebb and flow, but like largely he's been productive since they called him up. He missed some time with the injury, but he's come back from that and he continues to hit for this team.
1: Yeah, and what I was going to say is I feel like since coming back from an injury, he's been taken to another level, both at the plate and in the field. You can see he's more comfortable at second base. I do wonder if the weight of that pressure to play shortstop at the big league level, which everybody deep down knew was not going to be a long-term solution. I wonder if that has freed him up and allowed him to do more at the plate and focus on his hitting a little bit more. He doesn't have to think about defense all the time right now. I do wonder if that's made a difference for him. We've seen all year long, he's been able to go the other way a lot. That's a good sign. He's hit lefties pretty well. The most important thing is not even just what the numbers are, but you see progression year to year and even within this year to now where you hope that at the end of September you're saying, boy, he finished really strong. And that's, you know, exactly what they want going into next year to say, okay, forget what their season numbers are. How did they finish? Especially the young guys. And did they go into the off season with some optimism and reason to think, okay, they're going to be even better next year now with the experience that they've gotten?
0: Yeah, and there are a lot of ways to look at building a good baseball team, but one of them is if you get offense at positions from which most other teams don't get offense, if you have in Luis Garcia – a second baseman who can hit, who's a legitimate hitter, you know, a legit above average batter, that's a leg up on a lot of teams in the majors. And you may have that in Luis Garcia, a guy who plays second base, a defensive position, but who is good offensively. Not unlike Bert Ruiz. If he's a good batter, you're getting offense from catcher. Most teams aren't getting offense from catcher. So down the line, that's something that could pay off. You know, it's been a tricky year with Lane Thomas. We know how good he was final two months of last season disappointing for the most part this season, but lately a lot better. He, for the month of August, slugged 468. He, in this month of September, has been on quite a run. I mean, you know, it's a small sample size in the month, of course. But Lane Thomas, over the final two games of this series, the 7-1 win on Saturday night, 3-4, for solo homer, RBI single, another single and a walk. And then in this 7-1 win on Sunday afternoon, 2-4 for with a double a single and a walk. And the two things that really stood out, first of all, the Nats with the instant impact offense once again in this game, top of the first Lane Thomas begins the game lead off double down the left field line gets driven in by Luis Garcia you love that like quick to the point you know bing bang boom nats are up one nothing and then how about his plate appearance in that four run third a one out single to left on an O2 pitch the hit came on the eighth pitch of the plate appearance off him having fouled off six consecutive pitches that was pretty impressive from Lane Thomas. We're seeing a lot of good things. He's going the opposite way some. The power is back on. He's hitting homers and doubles. And this really does feel like the Lane Thomas of 2021.
1: He fouled off six straight 0-2 pitches in that at-bat before delivering the single. That was a great at-bat from him. Again, I think I mentioned the other night, I like him leading off. I know it hadn't worked as well earlier in the year when they tried it. I feel like I would stick with it now. I've been waiting, trying all kinds of different things with this team. Who's their best leadoff hitter? Cesar Hernandez, Luis Garcia, Victor Robles at times. I feel like right now, just go with Thomas and see how he does there. I do think he can be pretty productive and make a difference for you. He's putting together quality at bats against both lefties and righties, drawing his walks as well. He had one in this game. So You know, good stuff. We need to see it over the bigger picture, of course, and you're still kind of in that uncertain territory. Is he an everyday player? Is he a bench bat? Is he a center fielder? Is he a left fielder? What exactly is he? But now's the time to try to find out. Keep putting him in there every day the rest of the season and maybe at the end of all this, you have a little better sense of it and He's certainly making the most of this opportunity at the moment, and I've been glad to see that because like you said, it hasn't been a great year for him, certainly a lot of downs along the way, but he is finally stepping up and and going on a little bit of a sustained run here
0: lately. And how about this with Lane Thomas in this series? He was the Nats starting leadoff batter in all three games. He started each outfield position in this series, Friday night left field, Saturday night center field, Sunday afternoon right field. So there's a versatility. There is a position flex with Lane Thomas that you don't necessarily have with other guys. So like that right there brings value. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Bags Meneses? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Meneses' Big Breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a high pop. Playable right of the plate. Here comes Ruiz with a play on the grass, makes the catch, and a curly W's in the books. And
0: so is a series win over the Mets at Citi Field. Well, I guess Mr. Position Flex on the Nats these days is Ildemar Vargas, And it feels like all he does is like once a game, have a big hit. He had another big hit in this game, one for four with a two-run single. He in that four-run third had a two-out, two-run single to left center. For a 5-1 Nats lead. Some big innings for the Nats over these two wins, right? The five-run top of the ninth in Game 2 and this four-run third in Game 3. Again, for the longest time, right, we were not seeing anything like this from this team offensively. Few, if any, like offensive, quote unquote, eruptions. Few, if any, big offensive games. You never saw big innings, which you often saw were innings that were set up to be big, you know, multiple guys on base, nobody out, one out. And the that's doing like nothing in the inning. And you did have an inning in this game where you had the bases loaded and the Nats were unable to come through with a run. But we're seeing the offense produce here, like 14 runs over the final two games at the division leading Mets is not nothing. That's an impressive achievement.
1: Yeah. And they're doing it without a whole lot of power either. So they are finding ways to sustain some rallies with singles and doubles and walks. And I give them credit, as we've said, that's not the easiest way to go about it when you need that many hits to score runs, but they found a way here the last few days to do that. In addition to the Cesar Hernandez home run, good at bats in that, in that third inning from Thomas, like we said, all the foul balls, Manessas with a single on an O2 pitch. You had Ruiz, a two run single And then you had Vargas, a two-out, two-run single. And boy, Ildemar Vargas, is he having fun out there or what? It's like the guy is just a joy. There's always a smile on his face. He also was involved in the strangest play of the game. And, you know, they get credit for a double play on it.
2: Escobar waits the pitch to him. Little looping fly ball, shallow left center. Hernandez racing in. makes No, he drops the ball. He drops the ball, but he recovers and throws to third. Vargas is going to step on second. Now they should throw to second. Throw the ball to second. Vargas is jogging that way. He's going to tag out Canna, and that should be a double play.
1: Vargas, I'm pretty sure having no idea what was actually going on, because all he had to do was throw the ball to second pace to force out the runner. This was essentially make up for the infield fly fiasco the other night, except you can't call infield fly on a ball hit to the left fielder. All they had to do is throw the ball there. He's out, double play inning over. Instead, he's just chasing down anybody he can find to tag them out. They get the double play in the end. He made it way more complicated than it needed to be, but the guy's having fun and making the most of this opportunity. He has been around the big leagues. This is not Joey Manessas who's in the big leagues for the first time. Vargas has played for several teams, including the Diamondbacks, the Cubs, But he is making the most of this one and playing his way into a job for next year.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're unsure what to do, just tag everyone in sight and make (laughs) sure that you get two outs, which is what Vargas did there. So actually kind of applaud him for that. When in doubt, tag everyone out. You know, there's a rhyme for you as a baseball player. When in doubt, tag everybody out. You know, that play, though, like you think about it. OK, Cesar Hernandez, these last two games, was an ad starting left fielder. First time in his major league career, he was a starting left fielder. You are taking a chance when you do that. And you saw on that play the chance that you were taking. I mean, you know, if this game mattered, if this game was close, this is a different story. Bottom of the seventh, runners on first and second, pretty routine fly ball and shallow left center. And Cesar drops it. I mean, clearly him not being a normal left fielder played a role there. and then miraculously. They end up getting a double play out of that, which is just incredible. He fires the ball to third base for the force out, and then Vargas did his thing of tagging everyone in sight. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to start experimenting with people, which is fine, you know, I'm not really like angry about it, but it's not easy to play any position. We sort of label certain positions as defensive positions, others as not so much. Every position has its challenges. And if you've never done it before, as Cesar has never done it before at the major league level, it's not easy to just become a left fielder and start making all the plays that you need to make.
1: Yeah, but you know what, Al, it's worth it because you gotta get that bat in the lineup, as we see. Put make him a corner outfielder, he becomes a power hitter. I think they go hand in hand, clearly. And he didn't just homer, he drew two walks in the game as well. This is like his best offensive game in a long time. I think they go hand in hand.
0: And it's funny with him because remember, he was not drawing any walks earlier in the season, and he's actually drawn some walks these last few months. But with that homer, so in that two run fifth, Cesar Hernandez, who again had not homered the entire season, smashes a two out, two run homer. To the second deck. Like, how about that? The guy has shown, like, no power the entire year. And then he finally homers. And what he does is to the second deck at the Mets. Like, what sense does that make? It makes zero sense. He was down 0-2 in the count, too. Like, that was not a plate appearance in which you were expecting Cesar Hernandez to home run. So go figure. And then the Nats do the great baseball tradition of the silent treatment in the dugout. And at least from what I saw on TV It was Davey Martinez who ended the silent treatment. And to me, it's like, you don't want to be the guy who ends the silent treatment. So it's like, you got to wait for somebody else to do it. The manager ended up doing it. I think Davey just wanted to move on because he sort of half-heartedly congratulated Say and then got back to managing. So maybe Davey was like, enough of this. Let's get back to the game. But yeah, the silent treatment. I I think it's one of baseball's great traditions.
1: It was great. And Davey even said it got to a point that he felt bad for the guy because it went on a long time. (laughs) You see it a lot of times on like a rookie on his first career, Homer and The kid doesn't really know. Hey, what's going on? How come nobody's talking to me? And then, you know, maybe ten seconds, fifteen seconds, they all mob him. This one went on. There was several pitches were thrown to the next batter before they finally did it. And Davey said, "I had to break the ice. I was starting to feel bad for the guy because they know what he's been through this year. They know it's been tough on him. Of course, it's weighing on his mind." The guy hit twenty one homers last year. He had zero this year. And the one thing I'm going to dispute with Davey here, he mentioned a couple of times that you know that Cesar had come close on multiple occasions. He really had not. There was one the other night against Oakland where I thought he might hit, have hit the walk-off homer in the ninth and it died at the warning track. But there have not been that many other deep drives where you you know thought, oh, this might be the one. Really only a handful of them all year. Now, Cesar pointed out that for the first half of the year, at least when he's leading off, he was really emphasizing getting on base, making contact, all those other things first and foremost. So, he wasn't really thinking about hitting for power. And you could also say, well, look at what the numbers were. It's not like he was reaching base at that high of a clip. But I do wonder if along the way, it kind of messed with his head, messed with his swing. This is a guy who can hit for power as the season went on and he still didn't have one. You have to wonder if it was you know too much in his head and that he did alter some things in the wrong way. So, glad to see him get that one off uh, – the monkey off his back. Everybody in that dugout was thrilled for him, and the fact that it was a no doubter wasn't like some little wall scraper. It was boom off the bat, second deck, everybody celebrating, and, and as part of a collective good game and win. You know, if he had done that in garbage time when they're trailing eight to one, doesn't really mean anything. So the fact that that really contributed to this win, I think, helped make it a little bit sweeter.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a fun moment. Ceso Hernandez is an interesting guy to look at in terms of the offensive profile because he hit 21 homers last season. He also slugged under 400 last season. When people talk about like hitting for power, you can measure that in a lot of different ways and it's not as simple as hitting for homers. Like to me power is you look at slugging percentage and you want a guy like 450 or higher. You know, 500 is really good. He slugged 386 last year. So even with the 21 homers, he was not some power hitter for the two teams uh, for which he played what was it Cleveland and and the White Sox so yeah I mean I think him coming to the Nats this season was kind of like all right he hit 21 homers last year yeah but he also slugged 386 so you know I don't know what really you could have been anticipating but this season he's slugging 316 which is just rough really rough he does have more doubles this season than he had last season but he finally has a home run good for him and, uh, well, I guess for now he's playing left field until Nelson Cruz is back, right? I mean, I, I, they don't have many other options, basically. They don't, they're, not, they're not interested in playing Alex Cole and Josh Palacios. That's pretty clear. So I guess we're going to see more of Cesar Hernandez in left.
1: I guess so. I mean, you can't take that big bat out of the lineup at this point, right? You've got to keep him in there,
0: ride the wave. I guess you do. I guess you do. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Al Goldie for Window Nation. We are into September, a time for pennant races in baseball. And Window Nation is offering pennant race-worthy savings. New windows from Window Nation. At half the price, get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Lower your energy bills, raise the value of your home with new energy efficient windows from Window Nation. Visit windownation.com or call 866 90 Nation and tell Window Nation. That Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. You know, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. And the average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with 20,000 windows installed. Window Nation windows are great. And Window Nation windows are installed right the first time take advantage of this terrific deal. Buy two windows, get two windows free. This goes for any style of new window from Window Nation and pay nothing until 2025. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you.
2: Fetty delivers. Had a swing and a blast to right center field. Robles chasing back to the warning track
0: at the wall. He leaps and he caught it. And he slams into the fence and he holds on. What a catch by Victor Robles. So it makes no sense that Cesar Hernandez had not homered all year. And then when he finally does homer, it's a second decker. It also makes no sense that Eric Fetty got shelled in an outing against one of the worst hitting teams in the majors in Oakland in Eric's last outing. And then on Sunday he bounces back with a terrific outing at one of the best hitting teams in the majors this season in the Mets. Like, raise your hand if you expected that. Eric Fetty on Sunday afternoon was really good. One run in six innings. He gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. He issued just one walk. He did have only two strikeouts, but he threw a good number of strikes, 101 pitches, 65 strikes versus 36 balls. All of this happened off an outing for Fetty This past Tuesday night, six runs in two and two thirds innings in a 10-6 loss to the American League worst Oakland A's at Nationals Park. The A's came into that game 28th out of 30 major league teams in team-weighted runs created plus this season. The Mets went into Sunday fifth in the majors in team-weighted runs created plus this season. Again, it doesn't make any sense that he got not just roughed up by the A's, but I mean, he really got steamrolled by the A's in that outing last Tuesday night. And then on Sunday afternoon, Fetty did a really good job at one of the better hitting teams in the majors in the Mets.
1: So two things here. Number one, he talked about after that last start, he was mad at himself for not being more aggressive. He felt like he was throwing a lot of breaking balls, staying away from their hitters. He wanted to go inside more, and he was upset at himself for not doing it. So he vowed to do that better this time around. And He did, but he also pointed out that it helped a lot when his teammates gave him a big lead early on. You can afford to be a little bit more aggressive if you happen to give up a solo homer when you're up already by five, six runs, not as big a deal. So I think they went hand in hand and allowed him to take a little different approach. To me, the key for the whole game for him is the second inning. He gets into trouble early on. He's got first and third Nobody out, gives up a sacrifice fly, but then clamps down from there and gets out of the rest of the inning, didn't let the inning snowball on him. It's a 30-pitch inning. He had to work really hard, but he got out of it with the one run and from that point on, much more efficient. He got through what the next four innings on 60 pitches, never more than one base runner per inning. So, that was a sign of what he can do. and Maybe in his mind, he's saying, well, I've got a big lead. I could afford to approach it that way. You know what? Take that approach all the time. Just act like you've got a big lead. Don't worry about nibbling. The whole thing with Eric Fetty all these years is, hey, he's got good stuff. He gets ahead in the count 0-2, and then he starts dancing around the edges of the strike zone. Next thing you know, it's 3-2. He's walking a guy. He's laboring through these long innings. Treat it with the same aggressiveness that you did this game when you held a lead, even if you don't hold the lead at the time maybe it's just a little mental block for him. So good for him and good for him for finally beating the Mets in his 11th career start against them.
0: The Nats in this series, two wins. The two wins were very well-pitched games by Patrick Corbin and Eric Fetty. And the loss, unfortunately, was that rough outing for Josiah Gray on Friday night. But Corbin and Fetty, not two guys who you necessarily anticipated doing well at the Mets, ended up doing quite well. At the Mets, So the Nats get this series win. Very nice to have that. By the way, the Nats won this series despite their new hot bat, Joey Manessis, not doing much in the series. Certainly not doing much over the two wins. Manessis on Saturday night, 0-5, for three strikeouts, left four men on base. Manessis on Sunday afternoon, 1-5 for with a single and two strikeouts, left three men on base. So even without Joey Fourbags uh, killing it, the Nats are able to put up 14 runs over two games. So next up comes a four-game series against another division leader in the National League, the NL Central leading St. Louis Cardinals, games Monday through Thursday. And the Nats, interestingly, are going, at least for the moment, with a six-man rotation. They are going to go on Monday afternoon, 4.15 is that game. Anibal Sanchez will be the starting pitcher. Game two, Paolo Espino. Game three, Corey Abbott. Game four, Josiah Gray. So what's the thinking here with going with the six-man rotation right now? So
1: I think they want to try to give Gray an extra day of rest, something that we've talked about. They want to stretch him out over the season and try to limit his innings. It'll also give Corbin an extra day off, as it turns out. They have Abbott here. They haven't really needed him out of the bullpen. It's funny, he pitched the ninth inning of this game, and I'm thinking to myself, why bother if he's starting in a few days, but treat it like a bullpen session, and then he gets the start on Wednesday. So, at least for this week, it's a six man rotation. Doesn't mean they'll stick with that. After that, I think next week there are a couple of off days around the Orioles series, two game series. So, they could change things up again there. Maybe they skip Josiah's turn, things like that. They really seem to want to get him through to the finish line all the way to the end. But as we know, they are watching the innings, and maybe the way it went the other night makes them say, okay, let's give him a little bit more break. He might be showing sometimes some signs. Of uh, fatigue. And then also keep in mind, Mackenzie Gore is going to probably figure into this somewhere. There's good news on him. He's scheduled to throw a simulated game Tuesday afternoon in St. Louis facing live hitters, about 50 pitches. That's good. If he can get through that with no problems, it sounds like he will go on a minor league rehab assignment and start building up the innings. And if he does a couple of those, now you get to the season's last week or two, and the Nats would really like for him to make at least one or two starts for them Just so he goes in the offseason knowing that he's healthy, they get a chance to see him. So they have options here the rest of the way with their rotation, and I'll be curious to see how they map that all out.
0: So I was going to ask you, so it is worth it for Mackenzie Gore to make even just one or two major league starts? Like that juice is worth the squeezing in the Nats' mind.
1: That's what they think that provided that he's healthy, if he has any setbacks along the way, they're not going to force that issue. But he really wants to. He's had no problems since he got here. Everything has built up fine. And I I think the way Davey Martinez puts it, and it's kind of the same thing with Cade Cavalli. Now, there's a more compressed window there. It's going to make it tougher for him to do it. But the reason they want him at least building up as if he was going to pitch again is for a young guy who's still trying to establish themselves up here, do you want to go into the winter and say- well, am I still hurt or am I healthy? Do I need to change my off-season routine at all? Do I need to be worried about this come January, February when I start throwing again? So I think the the idea is, even if it's just one start for Gore, even if it's just some you know a simulated game or or some bullpen sessions for Cavalli at the end, at least in your mind you know, hey, I am healthy. I don't need to worry about this. I can just go into the winter and treat it normally. So I think that's the approach there. But again, in both cases if there's any signs of anything, they want them to speak up and they'll shut it down and don't even attempt to take any chances there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping for greatness from Mackenzie Gore, given the way that things have gone with Nats pitchers this season coming off injury. I mean, I don't know how you expect good things to happen after Strasburg and Ross and Cavalli. Like, I don't know. But yeah, it would be awesome to see Gore pitch and pitch well. By the way, you mentioned Cade Cavalli. This to me has become hysterical. Davey Martinez will not declare any pitcher done for the season, even if it is like screaming obvious that the guy is done for the season. Davey would not do it with Kay Cavalli. He the other day gave an update on Steven Strasburg and would not concede that Strasburg is done for the season, even though like everyone has thought that for weeks now. And then this is the best one. So the Nats on Sunday put Victor Arano on the 15 day injured list, retroactive to September 2nd with a right shoulder strain, recalled Andres Machado. From Triple A Rochester, when I read in your article that Davey wouldn't even say that Victor Orano is done for the season, we'll see how he's at. I mean, he's going to be shut down for you know a week or two. What is this? Is this like an organizational edict from Mike Rizzo, where Mike has told Davey, don't declare any pitcher done for the season? Like, why can't Davy just say what is pretty clear to everyone?
1: He came as close as he has to any of them in admitting it in Arano's case, but wouldn't quite go all the way there. I think that's a Davy thing. I don't think that's an organizational thing. I do think that's him. And I think it's a mental thing. Like we're talking about those other guys cases, not wanting them to think, well, I'm done. I don't need, I don't have any work to do the rest of the year. He wants them working. He wants them rehabbing, building their arms up, and and maybe getting to a point that they feel better about the way they feel at the end of the season. Victor Arano, probably not as important that he feels that way. The man has made 45 appearances, I think, this year. He may or may not be a part of the long term plan. You know, probably less significant in his case that he approached this last month as though he is coming back. But yeah, it is just kind of the way that he does not like putting timetables on anybody's return from injury, and especially when it comes to pitchers.
0: I don't mind the timetable thing because Davey's not a doctor. But when it's pretty obvious that someone is done for the year, especially Victor Orano, like it's okay to say, yeah, you know, he's probably done for the year like that. That's okay.
1: Now he did with Yadiel Hernandez and the calf injury, like very quickly said, you know, it looks like he might be done for the year. And they put him on the 60th AIL, and they're like, wait, hang on calf injury. Like, is it really certain that he couldn't come back? So with him, (laughs) they didn't hesitate with these other guys. They're still leaving like that window, just slightly ajar
0: once they made that move to the 60-day IL, he was definitely done for the season, right? These other guys, in theory, quote-unquote, they might be back. But yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, whatever (laughs) whatever you got to do to get through the day, I guess. But hey, Nats are playing better. It's nice to see this. It's going to be very interesting to see how they perform in this four-game series at the Cardinals. And uh, look, you know, we understand the state of the season, but it's good to have some wins. It's good to have some positive vibes. in the Nats now, at 47 wins are getting closer to clinching, not having 110 losses on the year, which I think probably matters to at least some people on the team.
1: Yeah. No, I think it does. That's not a number you want to reach. That doesn't happen very often. Teams get to 110. Those are historically bad teams and they're trying to avoid that. There is a storyline coming up in this series against the Cardinals that I don't know any of us thought would be in play. Albert Pujols homeward again on Sunday. He's up to 695. Nobody thought he was going to challenge 700 in his final season. He is on a tear right now facing the Nationals for four games. Let's see how they do, how they approach him, how much does he play. That is going to be a big part of this series that I don't think any of us anticipated would be a part of.
0: Maybe the Nats can bring back Mike Bassick and he can pitch and (laughs) he can face Pujols and he can have the honor of giving it up to Bonds and giving it up to Pujols. So who knows? Yeah, you know, Albert Pujols, this really is a stunner because he looked about as done as you can look and he's looked done for years and that he's having this one last blaze of glory it's a pretty amazing story i mean it's a pretty cool thing to see this where like you know the old cowboy for one last ride he can summon up enough power and enough production to go out on a high note and you know, I, I was kind of like at first. I was like, "All right, this is not going to last." He's continuing to produce. Like this is continuing to be a thing with him doing well and doing well for a Cardinals team that obviously is in the midst of a playoff push.
1: Yeah, right. And the fact that he's doing it by coming home. Did anybody really think he'd ever come back to St. Louis after he left them a decade ago? No. I mean, it is a turning into a fairy tale thing with him and Yadi Molina and Adam Wainwright. One last ride. Now, you know, we'll see once it comes to October. I still feel like the Dodgers, the Braves, and probably the Mets are better than the Cardinals but there's going to be some emotion in St. Louis for these guys because every game at that point could be their last and who knows I mean, more power to him. because he fell off the cliff so much over the last decade I think we tend to forget Albert Pujols was maybe the best right-handed hitter of a multiple generations what he did the first half of his career in St. Louis is the kind of stuff that you never saw from anybody. It's it's kind of the way we talk about Juan Soto now. That's who Albert Pujols was. And because in Anaheim, it didn't go well, we sort of tend to forget that and it's been a while. Albert Pujols is still one of the greatest of all time. And I think it's really cool to see him going out on top the way that he is.
0: Yeah. Like his legacy is 2001 through 2011, this incredible decade of production. And then this last decade, it's more like one of the ultimate examples of a big money contract that was a flop. So it's like those two things are at such a juxtaposition, but there's no doubt for his first decade, he was one of the best hitters we had ever seen in terms of like a player's first decade or so. And, you know, he's never tested positive for PEDs or anything like that. So in an era in which you had guys getting popped left and right and PED scandals popping up left and right, right? You think about the aughts, right? 2000 to 2010, 2011. He was doing it clean. He was doing really well. And if you're the Angels and you paid him all of the money you paid him and got nothing from him, and now he's with the Cardinals playing for basically peanuts and doing what he's doing, how do you feel if you're Artie Moreno? No wonder Artie is selling the Angels. He's tapping out. He's saying, enough with this. I've had enough of paying people all this money and getting nothing out of them.
1: In DC, we tend to focus on how things have fallen apart for the Nationals and the Lerner family and all that. But you know what? I'd much rather be them than I would be Artie Moreno. The Lerners got their World Series title. They do seem to be starting the foundation of building a team that maybe could win again in the future, whereas the Angels have got to be baseball's biggest disappointment of the last decade, and Artie Moreno has been front and center for
0: that. One of my perverted baseball hopes during all the Juan Soto trade talk was that the Nats would trade Soto to the Angels. So the Angels could have Soto, Trout, Otani, and Rendon and still go eighty and eighty-two and miss the playoffs. You know? Because that's what they do. They go eighty and eighty-two and they miss the playoffs. And you're like, how is this possible with all these guys on the team who are so good? But they're like incapable of making the postseason. So you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us podcast at gmail.com, uh, including if you'd like to sponsor the Natch Chat Podcast. We welcome you aboard. You can hit up Tim Schauvers for that NatchChat Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
2: Now the 1-2. Albert drives one out to left center. Field This does hit well. There she goes! Welcome to the 500 home run club, Albert Pujols. What a special moment for Pujols and the respect for the fans here in Washington, D.C.